Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. If you were here in the studio looking at me, you would see that I am wearing on my lapel a big green button that says, Go Global. Because this week at Beeson Divinity School, we've had a focus on the world Christian movement, on the imperative of Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone everywhere. And our guest today has been one of our speakers in the Go Global Conference here at Beeson this week, Dr. Julian Linnell. Welcome, Julian, to Beeson and to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. George. It's great to be with you. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. We can sense immediately you're not from South Alabama, are you? I I don't actually hail from this part of the world. Um, I uh, originally was born in England um, and uh, raised there. And in fact, uh, my my mother gave me birth outside Hampton Court. Um, There was a nursing home there. So I sort of like to say that I'm born outside Hampton Court Palace. That Um, was the great palace of Henry VIII, of course, back during the time of the Reformation and still an interesting place to visit. That's right. So raised in the UK, but I've been in the States now for about 25 years. And you are the executive director of Anglican Frontier Missions. Tell us a little bit about what that is and what your work is involved in doing. Yeah, it's uh, a mission that's dedicated to seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ go to uh, the least and the largest ethnic groups in the world who are still left, who haven't heard the gospel yet. The amazing thing is that today in 2012, there's still maybe almost a third of the world's population today uh, don't have a Christian presence or a vibrant church within them. And so we believe that from the scriptures themselves, uh, Jesus commands us to go to the ends of the earth, and there's still ends of the earth to go to. And so our vision is to see the churches grow and, and gather momentum in these different minority groups, sort of in, in the uh, 1040 area. Now, you've just used an expression, 1040. What does that mean? It's uh, really a belt 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator, and if you had a map in front of you and had a big magic marker pen, you'd draw from North Africa through the Middle East to India, China, Indonesia, that sort of belt of the world today where a large proportion of the world live, 1.7 billion people live in that area, and uh, the church, as we currently know, is very small and struggling, and uh, we believe God loves the people there. There's a little Christian presence, but we want to partner with him to see churches established in, in those areas. So are you in touch with believers, Christian believers who are in this part of the world or who sense a special calling to this part of the world and these particular, we say, unreached people groups? Yes, um, I think in two ways. Uh, first of all, um, through my work within the Anglican Church um, worldwide, which is uh, the third largest Christian body in the world today, uh, that there are many bishops and archbishops from that, those parts of the world, from Malaysia, for example, or Nigeria or Tunisia, who are indigenous believers and who are leaders in their communities, but also within different countries that God sort of bubbles up Uh, different believers from minority groups. And um, I had the privilege about six weeks ago to be sitting in the homes of some ethnic believers in Southeast Asia. And uh, they're first-generation believers, and um, um, God has revealed himself to them in dreams. Mm. And uh, I remember one lady telling me from uh, the uh, Miao 
people in Southeast Asia, how mm -hmm. she was the first person in her family to come to know Christ, and nobody in her village knew Christ. And the Lord revealed himself in a dream that her whole family would come to know the Lord. And uh, we sat in her um, very uh, wooden, uh, very rural, uh, poor area, village area mm -hmm. with her family. And she said, well, the Lord told me my whole family would come to Christ. And um, after a, a few months, she actually baptized her whole family. Wow. And they all wow. know the Lord. So it was great privilege. I feel a great privilege yeah. to meet people like that. Wonderful. You know, this is a story I encounter again and again, this revelation of Christ through a dream, particularly in the Muslim world, it seems that that once or twice I've heard that. So, well, that's just somebody's, you know, eccentric way of thinking. Or, But it's so widespread. It seems to me that there's something there. Talk about that. Uh, do, does Jesus have a special proclivity for dream revelations in the Muslim world and for, let's say, more verbal forms of communication in the Western world? What's going on here? That's an interesting question. Um, the particular case study I gave was not actually in the Muslim world. It was in a tribal, uh, uh, Chinese tribal um, minority area. So I was kind of surprised when that happened. But I think that um, God wants to communicate his love any way he can. And he uses scripture, but he also uses direct revelation through dreams or miracles or healings. And uh, when people come to know Christ through dreams, oftentimes they say, we want to know who this God is. Mm -hmm. And then if then there are opportunities for them to learn to read and they will read the scriptures or people will explain the scriptures. But I think it's something that as Western believers, we're uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. We're not trained in our churches. We're not. Mm -hmm. um, I remember sitting down in Malaysia with um, the Bishop of Malaysia, who started a whole bunch of churches among the Orang Asli, who are an aboriginal tribal mm -hmm. group. And we were with um uh, Rosemary Mabego, who's in charge of the evangelism in Kenya, and um, a, a, a leader from the Solomon Islands. And we were all chatting about evangelism and what it looks like. And they were kind of laughing at me because I was sort of behind the able. I mean, I really, you know, the healings, the dreams, the exorcisms, it yeah. was sort of, or not routine, but it was a part of their way of doing ministry that I felt that maybe from the Western side, I was not so equipped to or didn't quite have the same handle on that they did because it's oftentimes the way the Lord works in these sort of frontier areas. Yeah, and you know, there's been a whole current in missiological study, I guess going back to the 80s and 90s, people like Andrew Walls in Scotland and Lamansani at Yale and um, you know, on another level, Philip Jenkins uh, in North America, uh, who've been pointing us to the really amazing sense of God's movement in what is called the global south, south of the equator, Africa, Asia, Latin America, that seems rather different from what we experience uh, North America and Western Europe especially. And a part of that difference is the fact that uh, just what you're saying, there's, there's an aliveness, there's a sensitivity to what we might call, uh, I hate to use this word because it's so misunderstood, charismatic in a different way, the moving of the Spirit, the, the giving of the gifts of the Spirit. And that, that's something I think that uh, we, we in the West need to listen to. i give you an example. I was chairing a, a mission conference, actually it was a theological education conference, uh, of Baptist Christians from around the world. We were meeting in Seville, Spain. And the agenda was set by people like me from North America, Western Europe. We were talking about postmodernism and, you know, how you deal with secularism. These are the issues that, you know, concern us. And there was a brother from Africa who kind of interrupted all of that and said, listen, what you're talking about doesn't relate to me. We're not concerned about 
Foucault and all of these kind of <laughs> strange issues. Uh, we're concerned about witchcraft and exorcism and the power of healing. And it kind of just was a splash of cold reality in our faces that, look, there's a big and important and growing sector of the Christian world that uh, is not in tune with our concerns, but they have their own, and God is working there in extraordinary ways. Mm. I think I saw um, some of that in some of – we have some good relationships with a number of the bishops and archbishops in Nigeria. Uh, A very vibrant area, very uh, conflicted country, as we know, uh, particularly some of the more radical uh, elements of the Islamic faith uh, operating in that part of the world. But seeing their courage in the face of persecution mm-hmm. and seeing um, their, the cost that it's taken for them to stand for Christ, as well as their engagement in what we maybe call more charismatic types of experiences and so on, that really in these power encounters, it needs to be seen that Jesus is Lord, mm. that he is the one who has the power over the spirits, mm. and he has the power to heal. He may choose not to heal, of course, uh, and we don't want to put him in a box, but he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and I think for that experience for that. I remember uh, Moon Hing, who's the um, president of the Christian Council, I believe, in Malaysia, uh, telling me that you Westerners, you plan and strategize and so on. We just go out and do it. Mm. And then we talk about it later, <laughs> uh, what yeah. God has done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I remember that was sort of similar when I was living in China, uh, meeting with uh, house church believers. And, you know, go off and baptize people in the Yangtze River and students and so forth get kicked out of seminary. I'm, I'm sure that wouldn't happen <laughs> here at uh, at Beeson. But uh, I remember one student in particular, the, the government wasn't very happy that he was a seminary student. He was running around the town, baptizing, leading people to Christ, baptizing them in the river. And they said, no, this is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. As a seminary student, you need to leave. Yeah. Um, but yeah. he, he didn't wait for, you know, he, he had his marching orders from the Lord. And he wasn't waiting for some strategic plan or some somebody else to say you can or cannot do this. Yeah. They go I think I think what happens is they they go where they see the spirit moving. They're, and they're not they're not necessarily constrained by a modernist and postmodern assumptions that uh, it's hyper cognitive. Mm-hmm. I think they're in tune oftentimes. Sometimes I think it's partly because of the um, pre modern cultures that haven't gone through the enlightenment to some extent are more open to the spirit world mm-hmm. and uh, maybe we in the west are not don't have our eyes open to the demonic or to the uh, the the work of the enemy the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience here in north america but we don't have the eyes to see it yeah. but maybe they do have the eyes to yeah. see it right. and the way and the tools to be able to engage in that so i, I think there's a lot to be learned I, I want to talk a little bit about your own academic work which focused on linguistics and so the question of language and being sensitive to how language is used in especially cross-cultural situations. Say a little bit about your own work and what is the theological significance of linguistics in missions. Uh, my own work uh, is really sort of back to front because I remember when I went to applied for missionary service myself, I took a language aptitude test and um, they said, well, look, we're terribly sorry that we don't think you're up to it. And uh, that sort of was the gauntlet laid down for me to say, well, look, if you say I can't learn Chinese, I'm going to try my best to learn Chinese. And so I try to learn Chinese, and my Chinese isn't, isn't very good, but it's functional. I can communicate. Out of that came an interest in how language works, how culture works, how they're formal, informal ways of learning, how they're 
where we look at the familiar and make it strange, where we look at the strange and we make it familiar in terms of classical and uh, neoclassical ethnography, for example, or uh, the ways in which communities of share meaning and pass that meaning and transform the meaning and how communities in transition, for example, have uh, conflicting ways of communicating through generations, uh, young generation, old generation. So I had this experience in China. My wife's American, I'm British, so we have a delightful um, (laughs) cross-cultural communication there. But I think uh, my own work was in second language acquisition in educational linguistics, which was basically theoretical models of how languages are learned and where we took a particular interactionist perspective on language, that language is learned through interaction, not just cognitive, not just experiential, but the sort of interaction that's going on between people. And I think as I've moved in uh, missionary circles and so forth, I've appreciated the fact that there is a structure of language Mm -hmm. and that language isn't just grammar or or syntax. uh, Language is all the way from the phonemic right the way up to the pragmatic, uh, the discourse level or the socio-pragmatic levels. And that um, we in our speech communities are uh, function within that. We know what it is to be fully competent, when to be silent, when to shout, uh, when to um, scream, when to rebuke someone, who to rebuke, how to rebuke, how often to rebuke. We, we learn these almost um, as a fish in water. It's kind of organic to us. But when we cross cultures, those things are not necessarily self-evident. We can read the grammar in a book, sure. We know how to put a SVO, subject, object, verb, or SVO, subject, verb, object, in the structure of a sentence. But knowing how to use that mm-hmm. to, you know, buy a cigarette in, in Cuba in an appropriate way isn't just, you know, I don't know Spanish, but it, there's more to it than just the words itself. So when you're crossing cultures, that, that appreciation of the structure of language, the structure of culture is very important. I'll give you one example that um, I was kind of amused at. Um, a, a tribal group, group called the Miao people were translating the um, the Bible into their language, and they're not a literate people, they're oral. So the translators were um, developing um, Bible stories based on the book of Genesis. And um, they were coming to the covenant that God gave with Noah, and uh, were talking about the, the rainbow. And in their language, they did not have, um, they didn't use the word rainbow that they, you know, the translators wanted to use. And um, so they were wrestling with this, and um, uh, one of the translators um, said, well, why don't we use dragon drinking water? Hmm. Because in their culture, um, a rainbow comes as a sign that the dragon, who is a good sign, in, particularly in Chinese culture, um, drinks the flood, drinks the water. And so that was, they thought that was very culturally appropriate for the language. Well, then the, the Miao um, believer said, well, dragons in the Bible are, are not very um, positively uh, imagined. And so there you have a sort of automatic conflict between yeah. the culture and the language and the Bible and what they did. In the end, they came up with what I thought was rather a, a lame translation of multicolored arc mm. to translate the, uh, the rainbow mm. as a sign of God's covenant with people. But I, I think it's something that um, missionaries, that translators, mm. that church leaders need to wrestle with and come to a, 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 a final stage that is acceptable in the, in the heart language mm. of the indigenous peoples, that it's not just something superimposed from the outside, but it, they, can, they can own as a culture. Otherwise, the translation is not valued. Yeah. It's just what these yeah. other people did. It's not part of who we are. It's not speaking in our language. 
just following through on this, could you say a little bit about the whole question of Bible translation? We, we're familiar with the Wycliffe Bible translators, with other groups that have a sense of particular mission to produce the Word of God, translate the Word of God in the various cultures of the unreached people groups and folks who de- de- dedicate their lives to that. Uh, how do you see that movement going forward? And there's, you know, there's been a lot of controversy just right on the points you're talking about, I think, related to how we translate certain very revered concepts mm-hmm. in the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested in your perspective on that. Um, my own conviction is that, uh, that the Bible in the original languages, in the Aramaic and the Hebrew and the Greek, is God's revelation, his final word written to us and that his word needs to be interpreted and there needs to be a hermeneutic that be able to make it accessible to people in the different language. I feel somewhat uncomfortable when a paraphrase, a wonderful paraphrase, for example, like the, the message by Eugene Peterson that really helps us get the spirit of what God is saying and so on, is regarded as a sort of final translation. And I, and I feel in some ways some of the discussions about the word like the Son of God, particularly in Muslim work, or it could be other concepts in, in other uh, religions, is akin to that paraphrase versus the uh, very um, accurate, readable translations like the ESV, for example, or other, other translations like that. And I, and I feel that it's important to have the paraphrases, but we don't want to undercut the authority of God's final word written in, in another language. And I think that when we, when we say the paraphrase is equivalent to the original, that we, we're stumbling in problems. <laughs> we've, got, yes. we've got major problems. If there is a particular country or people group uh, that you have in mind now uh, that uh, need a Christian witness, of course, there are many, many of them, but can you give us a couple of examples? Could you talk about some particular people group uh, that stand uh, in great need of, you might say, an initial Christian evangelization? Uh, two groups come to mind. Uh, the first group is the Bell people, we call them, from Southeast Asia. They are about three million of them in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, we know probably of um, maybe 1,500, 2,000 are believers amongst them. A tribal people group that um, there have been repeated efforts over the years to, to reach them. Um, but really there's no systemic effort coordinated effort among this people and that the bell people is a people we need to pray for that god would say raise up workers in the harvest uh, indigenous believers as well as believers from other parts the other uh, people group that i would um, put on the radar screen is the arabs of yemen mm. the arabs of yemen as we know um, there was a church in yemen uh, there was bishops and episcopate up until the seventh century and um, we know that the queen of sheba probably came from that part of the world so there's a lot of history in, in that part of the world. But today, over about 22 million uh, people, uh, very, very few Christians. I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but it's maybe 1,000 to 2,000. Pray for the, the country of Yemen. And, and not only, I think, because of biblical, uh, being a biblical Christian that one wants to pray for what's on God's heart, but also what happens there affects what happens in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And so where God's rule is established. Um, and so it, it's important because it, it has actually got a global impact in what happens in the Middle East. And I think it's a country that's very unstable. It's a country that uh, we need people who understand Arabic, people who understand the culture, the history. Um, and, and frankly, um, I think people who are willing to lay down their lives for the gospel because they recognize the love that God has, he stopped at nothing yeah. to love the Arabs of Yemen. And um, the, the church worldwide, I think, has a responsibility to respond appropriately, sensitively, 
Uh, but I'd, I'd put out those two groups as, yes. as areas that we can. If, if uh, there were students from Beeson um, who are sensing a calling or looking at the world today, um, give them my phone number. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do have a wonderful ministry, I think, of encouragement. You're kind of a catalyst, aren't you, in kingdom work because you're calling out those that God is prompting to respond. Uh, you mentioned Yemen and uh, you know the difficulty and even the danger that's there for Christian witness. And you will remember, I'm sure, several years ago, there were several Christians who were martyred in Yemen. One of them was a graduate of Sanford University, a woman who was a medical doctor. And we remember her and uh, revere her life and her work. Uh, but she was quite... Uh, aware of what she was engaged in and going into a place like that. And a number of our students do the same. We pray for them here at Beeson every week in our services of worship, but often we can't tell, we can't say in print where they are mm -hmm. because that would put them in some jeopardy and it wouldn't be the right thing to do. But we lift them up to the Lord mm -hmm. and remember the great witness that they're making. And we do believe that God is calling new, uh, young, vigorous, bright, mm -hmm. as well as some of a little bit older like me to go out into that into that vineyard uh, that needs workers. Actually, I, I did hear just uh, when I was chatting with um, um, a colleague of mine, I, I won't mention him by name, but he was saying that there, within many Muslim circles, there, there are uh, the higher echelons within the academic and intellectual philosophical circles, there is a... Um, whatever we think of the other aspects of, that are going on within the, the, the Muslim world at the current time. But there is, I believe, a genuine interest in scholarly engagement with, with classical biblical Christians uh -huh. to know from, from those who, who treasure the historic faith, who are biblical, that they would want to understand and have that real engagement yeah. with them, saying, yes, you want to convert me and I want to convert you. Let's roll up our sleeves and have a conversation. Well, this is a wonderful uh, conversation, and uh, it's a, we're about out of time. But before we go, I wonder if uh, your list, uh, our listeners who are tuned in today uh, hearing you, uh, if, if you could present to them one aspect of your life or ministry that you would like for them to pray for you about. And then we'll close our podcast today with a word of prayer. Thank you. Um, next week I fly to India. Uh, to a part of India to pray uh, that God's work would be done, God, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would be so appreciative for the team. We have a team of 14 who are going with us to pray for certain holy cities um, where the gospel has not yet broken through, uh, particularly four different uh, unreached people groups in that area. It's very sensitive. It's in a, a difficult part of the world. But for God's protection, but more than that, that God would raise up indigenous leaders in this part of India. I know there's a lot going on in India, but it's a huge place um, that God would raise up workers for the harvest who go for the long term. We're uh, having this podcast here in the studio, and with us is always Betsy Childs. And I want to ask her if she would say a word of prayer, just especially for this uh, concern that you've uh, given, and then I'll say a closing word. Would you do that, Betsy? Father in heaven, we lift up Dr. Linnell and this team that will be traveling to India. We pray your protection on them, and we pray that you would hear their prayers. Lord, we know that um, your heart yearns to gather people to yourself and that you love the people of India, and we pray that you would intercede with this team as they pray for these particular cities and groups. Father, we thank you for his work, and we ask that you would bless it and raise up others to join him in the work of the harvest field. We ask this in the name of your son and for his sake. Amen. 
Thank you so much, Betsy. And thank you, Dr. Julian Linnell, for this wonderful visit today. We ask God's blessing on you and on the work you're doing with Anglican Frontier Missions. Uh, I forgot to say this at the beginning, but I'll close by making a point that you live in Richmond, Virginia. You are married to a wonderful woman named Kim, and God has blessed you all with four beautiful daughters. Thank you. So may the Lord bless you in your family life and in your service for him in the kingdom. Thank you so much, Dr. George. It's great to be with you. God bless you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.